Yeah. If we, <laughs> it's like, it's like no, like there's not much point in arguing about that. Uh, but this teaching about uh, rebirthing, you, we should be able to experience it now, right? Everything that the Buddha is known as dita down there is something to be seen here and now. If it's not true here and now, it won't be true in the future. That's all. It's as simple as that. So let's just uh, take take the body. Is it reincarnating? or is it rebirthing, okay? Reincarnation, the word suggests, it's the same body arising moment after moment. <coughs> now, I think all of you know that every cell, every atom in the body is replaced every, te- every seven years. That's what they tell you, okay? So tomorrow, when you look in the mirror, just remind yourself, this face wasn't here seven years ago, okay? <laughs> now, the fact is that every seven years, the face looks approximately the same. I mean, it is getting worse, but... It looks approximately the same. <laughs> so there's a feeling that it's the, it is the same face, but we know it isn't. It's rebirthing. Every cell is rebirthing in its own way. Okay? Every atom. That's the process of rebirth. Think about your, um, your, your emotional life. And when we say the body, by the way, I'm here meaning also the sensations that come from the body. Because hmm? the body gives us. So our... our the sight of our eyes probably get a bit weaker as we get older and things like that. So even though the eyes are rebirthing, but they're also getting worse, but that's the way it is. <laughs> but every moment, every moment, you see, you can't say this is the same body as the last. And yet here it is. Okay, so that gives us an idea of the distinction between reincarnation and rebirth. If we go into the mind, just consider your, uh, your emotions, yeah? your emotional life. Sometimes peaceful, sometimes uh, not so peaceful. But it's constantly birthing, isn't it? There's constantly this, this process of emoting all the time. All you have to do is just stop still and place, place your attention inward, and there's some mood there, there's some emotion there. But it's constantly changing. Huh? There's this constant state of rebirthing, re-arising into the present moment. But it's never the same emotion. Uh, what about thoughts? <coughs> yeah, just think about how our thoughts have developed over the years, say from the age of two. It's changed, hasn't it? I hope. So, this is <laughs> so you can see, we're still thinking, the thought re-arises, but it's never the same thought. So now, when we die, well, let's see what happens. Now the Buddha points out, if we live according to our spiritual aspirations, if we live um, according to goodwill, it generally it, it will make our inner life more happy, more settled. See? I mean, if you're in a war situation, no matter how much goodwill you are, it's still not a pleasant place to be. But inwardly, you can begin to have a certain peacefulness about, about ourselves. And by doing that, we are forming relationships, so it helps the relationships around us. So by practicing, by, by, by developing spiritually, we're actually making this life, right here and now, something more pleasant for us, more happy, more meaningful. Okay? Now, that's, now according to the understanding, we're developing conditionings, these conditionings. So if there, if there is no rebirth after death, if we just annihilate, fine, but at least we've had a fairly decent life, I mean, we've been generally, yeah? 
if we happen to rebirth and find ourselves um, uh, in another place, another time, then these conditionings come with us. Because you, you don't arrive there with nothing. So these conditionings come with us, and then we'll be very happy that during the last life we did a bit of practice. So it's a win-win situation. <laughs> but these these concerns about rebirth is why what's the point? Our our attention spiritually, see from a spiritual point of view, is right here and now. It's the only moment we've got anyway. It's this you know the whole of our of our practice, the whole of our effort should be getting this moment right. There we are. Uh, you talked earlier about. Oh, there's any questions about that? Sorry, actually. Any criticism? Editorial? No. You talked earlier about the link between identification and the arising of suffering. Could you say a little bit more about identification as a, as a phenomenon, as a process? Um, Just uh, for those of you who um, who've been into Buddhist practice for some time, historically speaking, when the Buddha talks, he's very careful um, to talk about experience. He's very careful to keep his language mainly about experience. So when he talks about nirvana, he's talking about an experience. As Buddhism developed, the actually <coughs> changed away from the experience to what is it that experiences the experience. And that became what's known as the consciousness only school. Right? When we're practicing and we are pulling ourselves out of this body with its sensations, put, when I say that, I mean they become objects. You can feel feeling. Right? You can feel feeling. When you pull out your emotions, you find a position where you can feel emotions. Right? You're aware of feeling. You're aware of your emotions right? all the time. This awareness is beginning to disidentify with what it previously would have identified with. Yeah, and this backward step, you see, leads to the realization of what this awareness is. And the word I prefer for that is the knowing, rather than consciousness, because these days that word has been used in all sorts of ways. The knowing is a, is a rather good word in English because it's one of these gerunds which has, um, it has a verbal meaning, knowing, uh, so it doesn't coagulate so much into something. Huh? So this knowing has the capacity of being aware and it is, it is our intuitive intelligence. That's what it is. And it's prior to thought. Thought isn't intelligence. It's prior to thought. It uses thought uh, to express its understanding. It's prior to emotion. It uses the emotional life to express its understanding. And it's prior to the body. It uses the body to express its understanding. So these are three so-called intelligences, our physical intelligence that we see in sport, our emotional intelligence, our intellectual intelligence, but these are simply expressions, 
coming from this knowing. And this knowing becomes more apparent to us the more we distinguish between that which knows, the awareness, right, the looking, the observing, and what is actually experiencing. I forgot the question. Yeah. That sounded like intuition to me, some kind of deep intuition what you just talked about. Of yeah. which That's right. I was down I was down at the dinner table and there was this pot of hummus mm. and I wanted to take something something inside me don't do it. And I thought, that's stupid, I really like hummus, why shouldn't I eat it? And it said, Don't do it never all bother. And I took my spoon and lifted it up and the lady from across the table reached over and I smacked the spoon against her head and it was all full of women. So I think I had some intuitive inkling. Well, I shouldn't do it, but I didn't understand it and I didn't didn't listen to it either. And, yeah, that sounds stupid. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I'm not the yes there. Well, <laughs> I'm not even sure I'd take that as a great example. <laughs> what, I, what I would say is that there's a confusion between intuition and the feeling of intuition. Now you've got to be careful because this intelligence in Buddhist understanding is deluded. So you may feel something is right, but it's not necessarily so. Just as we may think something is right, it's not necessarily so. Everything that we feel and, and, and think has to be questioned. Don't think that just because I have a feeling it must be right. Yeah? Sometimes these feelings come in other ways, like voices from God, like that guy who went and swam across the lake to say uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. So you have to be very careful about, you know, oh, it must be, it's an intuitive thing, it must be right. See? You have to question it too. Oh, yeah. Now. <laughs> This process of stepping back out of the body with its sensations and so on is the process of disidentification. Right? You're redefining yourself. I'm not the body. I'm observing the body, I feel the body, but I am not the body. I'm not the emotions, I feel them, I know them, but I am not that. See? So you're constantly stepping out of previous identification. And as I mentioned, I think, this morning, the observer is the most difficult one to overcome um, because you can't, you can't step out of that. If you step out of that, you simply create another observer, observing the observer. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of endless mirror process. So that is beyond our control, you see. That happens when the times are right. Um, so every time we fall into an identification, we become what we identify with. That's why it hurts. That's where the suffering is. So this uh, pain in my knee, so long as I can observe it as pain, so I'm saying pain, pain, you see, and there's this push away from it, right? I don't want to, right? Now, in meditation, I'm observing this resistance, not to be with the pain in a equanimous way, not to open up to it. And because of that, this begins, this reaction, it's only a reaction, begins to die away. And I find myself peaceful with pain. Okay? This is on the presumption that the knee is not about to explode. Okay? But we're not trying to defeat pain, right? And we're not trying to be better than pain. We're just trying to investigate what pain is. 
So, I'm, so now this resistance is gone, and I'm sitting just with this sort of ache in my knee, and I'm saying things like pain or aching, you see. Then, as it were, I drop into the pain. I drop into those sensations. Hmm? And as I drop into it, deep into it, I actually begin to feel the sensations, my noting word changes. I begin to say things like heat or pressure. And at that point, you see, there's no suffering. Suddenly, as I move my awareness upwards, as it were, and it becomes pain again, then I get the resistance. Then I realize that pain is a mental construct. It doesn't actually exist. What exists are sensations coming from the knee. Yeah? So these are your investigations, and so in so doing, you disidentify with the idea of pain. And that helps you to find a equanimity with it. Yeah? Now, as I say, you only do this to a certain point, you know. <laughs> so, every time we fall into an identification, suffering will come. Even in everyday life, as soon as you identify with your job, right? I am a nurse, you know, I am a, a whatever. As soon as I am something, there's potential of suffering. You lose your job, who are you? Yeah, you go through an identity crisis. See? Rather to say to yourself, this, this is what I do, rather than this is what I am. <coughs> Yeah? And at the more subtle level, there's the uh, relationship of possession. See? When you possess something, you can possess people, you possess them. So that relationship is one where this object uh, or this person is being held by you, it's being clasped, grasped by you. So there is tremendous uh, potential for suffering. Yeah, if the person goes, disappears, dies, whatever, then you're left with this, this burning ache in the heart, which is that grasping. If you lose something, you get very angry. If somebody takes you, you get even more angry. You know? And uh, some of you will have heard me say, if somebody steals something from you, um, you still go around saying, you know, they stole my car, they stole my, t they stole my purse. My purse, it's theirs. What? What's about living in the delusion that is yours? <laughs> see? And as soon as you click onto that, then you see compassion arises. You say, well, they can have it. Just like that. You got insurance anyway. Any, <laughs> any questions? Any observations? Additions? You can only use objects. You can only do your work. Okay? As soon as you identify or possess, problems will arise. Internal, you know. Eh? Yeah? Could you talk a little about how to remain grounded in meditation and why this might be important? Well, the, um, uh, I think I mentioned it again uh, this morning. The process of insight, real insight, can only happen when this intuitive intelligence can completely pull itself out of, disidentify with thought. So thought here includes not only words but images. Words and images are, um, uh, contain our history. They contain our past experience. And they are like 
coloured glasses that make us see present experience in the, in the, uh, from the view of the past. And therefore, we're always in a state of comparison or contradiction. Yeah? Even if it's a very subtle thing. So you meet a, a friend and you expect them to be like this because of your past experience with your friend. If they're not like this, then you get upset. When you have some food, see, uh, some, um, an apple or something, we always take the apple and we're always eating all our history of apples. Every time you bite that apple, it's in comparison with all past apples. So it's either not sweet enough or too bitter, or it's just absolutely perfect. This is the apple. Huh? But actually, to taste this apple as this apple is, you have to get rid of all that. Now, how do we bring this intelligence back to direct experience of things as they are, to understand and see things as they really are, as the Buddhist phrase. So, you have to bring that intelligence out of thought, and you do that by grounding it in your physical feeling experience. So if you want to taste the apple, put your attention on your tongue. If you want to see a tree, keep looking at it until, as it were, that you're absorbed into the tree rather than just seeing it as another tree. So, in the meditation, that's what we're doing. We're constantly trying to unshackle, unconfuse, disentangle this intelligence from its identity with thought, thought patterns ideas. And these things are very subtle. So in your breath, when you're watching the breath, for instance, the rising and falling of the abdomen or at the, at the nostrils, wherever you're watching it, you'll see there's first of all some idea of movement. Okay? Something coming in, something coming out. There's somewhere a picture in your mind of your, of your nose or your abdomen. And there's sensation. Okay? Now what there is, is sensation. The idea of it rising and falling and the picture of the, of the nose or the, of the abdomen are mental constructs. Okay? So by drawing our attention into the breath of sensation, this intelligence, you see, begins to let go of that and begins to see sensation as sensation. Okay? And in this way it's clarifying itself, un unshackling itself from these thoughts and images as a direct experience. Now it's not as though we want to get rid of that capacity. Remember that after the Buddha was awakened, um, I mean he, he spent 40 years, yeah 40 years, teaching, walking around, talking, all these miserable people. <laughs> And walking up and down and being ordinary, he wasn't a schizophrenic or anything. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he didn't become a sort of amorphous blob under a tree with a sign, I am fully awakened. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's, he's an ordinary human being, he's going around in contact, speaking. Yeah? So we don't lose the capacity of thought, we just want to gain the capacity of letting it go. Right? Being able to be directly in contact with 
experiences as they are, not as we think they are, or would wish them to be. And that's part of the liberation that comes with practicing the passion. So how do you ground yourself? You ground yourself in your physical, felt experience. What's an emotion before you give it a name? That's what you want to find out. Yeah, any questions? Uh, you talked about staying with the emotions in meditation. Is there a time for this in daily life? Um, sometimes you might find a bit of space to stop, just to stop. <coughs> and just, as it were, contact your present condition. Um, but if our awareness, if our mindfulness is uh, spacious, you know, just generally loose, easy, then as you're talking to somebody, you can be aware of what's happening inside you. You can even sort of be aware of the breath on the periphery of your attention. If you concentrate too much, then you lose it, you see. But it's a case of feeling at ease and just relaxing into a present situation, you see. Uh, when you walk into a room, you know, just stop for a minute and just receive the room. When you're with somebody and they're speaking, we tend to already be preparing our answer. But if we just receive what they're saying and feel what they're saying, that's a mode of openness, receiving. There's always a little break while, we, while the thing switches and we have to respond. Okay? In that way, the person really feels that you're really listening to them, you see, rather than uh, trying to defeat them in an argument or something. So keeping in contact with just our general feeling, you'll see, it's, uh, it gives you a greater sense of um, control over your life, rather than just be driven by emotional states. You might have been talking to somebody and you got a bit irritated, you see. So before you walk towards somebody else, you just try and find a little space there to let it sort of dry out a bit. And then turn with that goodwill, you see, open-heartedness towards the other person. And you'll find stopping, constantly telling yourself to stop. It's a really lovely, powerful little word. One of those four-letter words. You stop. Good, eh? You just say stop. Okay, and the next thing to be done. So if, if you can create that little gap before you do anything, you see the intention. So at that point, you can say to yourself, should I be doing this or not? Yeah. Should I take the hoops? <laughs> and... Um, Be careful of um, this ability that we have of 
generating further and further uh, like a whirlwind of emotions throughout the day that by the end of the day you feel exhausted and you do that again by just stopping and whatever's come up you just let it begin to drain away you don't have to wait till it totally goes but begin to drain away I think you'll find you, you reserve a lot of energy we, we, we use a lot of energy in these emotional states Yeah. Anything else about that? We want to. I consider myself a reasonably happy person. Wonderful. Rewarding though it is, should I be concerned with the ethics of putting so much effort into being happier? <laughs> um, uh, the purpose of the, of the practice isn't to be happy. I remember once uh, when a teacher arrived and um, somebody said to him, oh, I'm so happy to see you, Saido. And Saido said something in, uh, in um, Burmese. And the translator didn't translate it. And later on, the person who said, I'm so happy to see you, Tyler, um, went to the translator and said, what, you know, like, what did he say? And he said, well, he said, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you aware. It would be brutal. So our purpose is not to be happy. Happy is a consequence of the practice. If you try to make happiness your aim, then you're into a struggle. Hmm? Happiness is a consequence. Peace is a consequence. You can't peace a situation. The active ingredients are love, compassion, sympathetic joy. Yeah? denied most obviously by our death. No wonder so many of us are so scared. I am. Hey. <laughs> so that's what we're trying. 
you could say that the practice of the Vipassana is a preparation for the peaceful death. Um, <coughs> I think it's Muhammad, wasn't it? One, one of his phrases: "You have to die before you die." See? Well, spiritually speaking, that means die to this self before you die. I think Jesus put it another way, more slightly more, um, uh, slightly more joyfully, you might say: "You have to be reborn." So to be reborn, you must something must have died. Spiritually speaking, that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about jumping up and down for Jesus. No? Gardening. You mentioned joy being the way of love and... and uh, a way of love and being akin to desire for gratification. Uh, the right way for true love of being. Can you explain, please? Um, with all these um, virtues that we have, um, they have obviously what's what's known as um, in the in the commentarial literature an obvious enemy. So the obvious enemy is love is hate, but they always have a, a subtle enemy to it. Um, so love is, love as we've said, is attachment. That means that you want, you need something. You are, some of your happiness is dependent on something out there. That's what, that's what attached love is, right? In other words, you need to be loved. It's that sort of feeling. If uh, loneliness, right, loneliness is the need for somebody to say they love you or to, or to express their love, right? You feel alone. You don't feel alone, you feel lonely, right? And they're not very nice feelings. In fact, in some cases, it can lead people to despair, even suicide. But the more you demand that people feed into this loneliness, paradoxically, the more lonely you feel. Because you know it's a demand, it's not coming from them, it's not natural, it's not given as a, as a, as a, as from their heart. So how do you deal with something like that? You have to sit with the loneliness, feel it, get in touch with that feeling of not being worthy, self-hatred, whatever comes up with it. And as it begins to die away, you begin to see these little, uh, little arisings. It's beginning to transform. And the transformation is what? From, from loneliness to what? Where do you go? To solitude. Solitude is being perfectly happy being on your own. Now, if you're perfectly happy being on your own, you can see that there's a lot of energy there to love somebody else. And you don't expect them, you don't need them to fill the hole within your own heart. You see? Yeah. So, whenever you find yourself in a position of loving or compassion, and you can feel these subtle enemies, like grief for somebody in compassion. Right? How does that help? Grieving for somebody. Compassion should be a joyful emotion. You're helping somebody. 
sympathetic joy becomes excited so that it's feeding into your need to be happy okay. all these are very subtle things that happen within us and we get confused and say well this is true love this is true compassion but as you know if, if I if I start doing things in order to be happy, going back to this, this other thing about I'm happy, should I, why should I be more happy? If I start helping you so that I can be happy, then you know I, I get into this classic do-gooder position. You know, and I define a do-gooder as a person who wants to do you the good they want to do you. <laughs> yeah. So true love, how do you, how would you go about establishing true love? It's always beginning from where the other person is. You're trying to relate to this person. So you know where you're coming from, right? And then you try and put yourself into their position. And you do that by asking them, what do they want? There's a lovely scripture called the, I can't remember what it's called now, but the Buddha approaches these three um, Arahats, they're, they're fully liberated uh, beings, they're, they're three monks who are living together. And he asked them, how do you live so peacefully together? And Anuruddha replies, well, I say to myself, what if I put what I want to do aside and do what the others want to do? And in this way we live peacefully. Now that really only works if the other person saying the same. You get, you, get the, you get to be used and abused. But you can see the attitude, eh? Let me just put aside what I want to do for the moment and let me hear what you want to do. That's true love, that's open. Then, then you can bargain and do what you want to do. <laughs> so, it's a case of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. And that's when you, you get this feeling of relating, real communication with somebody. Joy being the way of love. Um, well, joy, um, as I say, joy arises naturally um, as a as a as a, an, another type of relationship of rejoicing. So you're rejoicing in somebody else's uh, happiness, and what it undermines, the subtle enemy of that, is of course envy and jealousy, okay? where you want what the other person has jealousy you hate them for having it as well these um, these states they arise naturally you know once you get that basic platform right the one of love okay. are there any comments on that? Uh, can you discriminate a bit between skillful desire and unskillful desire? I thought all desire was to be, you have to be wary of. Um, it's the English, really. The word it's trying to translate is tanha. This tanha is a specific word. It means the desire that is wrong desire. 
It's the desire that arises of seeking happiness in the wrong places. See? It's not a skillful desire. There is another word, chanda, which is used to mean both good and bad desires. So, for instance, the desire to sit is, is, is a good desire. We should, we should develop that. And all desires that come from these, uh, from these attitudes that we've been talking about, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, they are to be developed. What we, don't, what we want to be able to discriminate against it, are those desires that are coming from misunderstanding. See? And it's uh, to try and do that, you'll, hear tra- you'll see translators translating this tana as craving, which is, you know, it's like there's no English word really, you'd have to say an unskillful desire, you have to put two words together. Craving is a bit strong. So all, all you have to do is, again, this general awareness, when you see an intention arise, a desire arise, if you're still, you can see, is this, is this wholesome for me or not? And then what we have to do is build up enough willpower to resist that temptation if we see it's not good, and just wait for the, you know, just stay with the agony of letting it go. <laughs> see? And when it goes, you're disempowering it all the time, you're disempowering that condition. And when we see a desire which is good, and we want to uh, develop it, every time you practice it, you, you develop that particular conditioning. That's how it works. So, you know, in, in, um, in Buddhist psychology, everything begins with a desire, with an intention. And these intentions produce actions. Speech, body, mind, thoughts, thoughts are actions. Yeah? And through these, we create conditionings, habits. And the whole compendium, the whole collection of habits that we have is our personality. That's what the personality is. Our character, personality. And it's that which is driving us to a destiny. See? So it's becoming aware of those things which are driving us to unfortunate destinies and those which are driving us to happy, happy hunting ground. So it's a case of discriminating for ourselves what's good for us and what's not bad. And in this way, we change this conditioning. This is the way we experience life. We're changing, we're changing the way we experience life. Any comments? Criticism? Editorial? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.